And I think that's what punk did. It put these people to the fore, you know, in a time when not much was happening. Uh, but suddenly they were on TV. Susie was on TV in London, you know. Yeah. But it was it was happening so quickly. We had different bands forming every week. Nobody had a clue what was going to happen, but everybody was wanting to, wanted to be in on it, whatever it might be. Hi, this is Lowell Tolhurst, co-founder of The Cure. This is Budgie, co-founder of The Creatures, drummer with The Slits, and Susie and the Banshees. Welcome to Curious Creatures. Life after punk. You may think you know the territory, but we drew the map. Continuing our origin story, were you like like super critical of the stuff that was happening so quickly as well? I mean, you were just saying you you were like uh, looking. F- you knew what you didn't want to sound like. It was like more elitist in Liverpool. Like, yeah, Devo were okay. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah they, were, they were okay. A little bit crazy. Split ends from Australia, right? No, no right, way. Right. No, yeah. too much, too much hairspray. Yeah. They really, they got the wrong end of the stick. Yeah. The Ramones, however, the yeah. Ramones, they were just, they just were something spectacular, yeah. different. Um, the Clash also, the Jam, yeah, could could care less. Yeah, you know. Yeah, no, I think we were we we were critical, but we also liked some of the same things. You know, me and Robert loved the loved Buzzcocks, and you know, we all had an affiliation with things like Bowie and T Rex. You know, so we mm. we could we could weave a web between those dots. You know, and connect those dots together. And anybody that we had as friends that weren't necessarily musicians. The whole sort of tribe of those people—that's what kept them together, you know. Those, those little things. So we we realised very early on that music was was our way out of that situation. It had, you know, it had to be our future. And like yourself, you know, my my mother passed away quite early in my life, and my father, for other reasons, wasn't really available to me. So I felt adrift. You know, uh, and much like uh, young guys, you know, in inner cities in America join gangs because they find, you know, an affiliation, a family there. My family was the was the cure, and the people surrounding the cure. That was my family. That was my my whole thing. So I gravitated towards that, and and, and I found solace in that. Mm. Uh, for us, it wasn't a hobby. It was it was existence. There was no other way. Yeah. We had we had poverty driving us. <laughs> well, there was that too. There was that. I mean, I didn't really realize how extreme that was uh, until I compared it to other people's stories. You know, I never thought of myself as being, you know, a poor person. Uh, I had lots of uh, you know, intellectual stimulus in our house, so it was. I didn't feel like I, I was had lost anything but i realized i grew up with uh very few of the 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 niceties of of life you know early on i'm glad i had a duffel coat in liverpool that's all oh bloody right yes yeah 
because there were windows broken in the flat I was in, and that was no fun. Um, I remember sitting around the Cardoma Cafe on the corner, just around the corner from Matthew Street, and thinking, how many, can we afford like a cup of tea, you know, and, and a baked potato between two? Yes. It's like everybody, okay, who's going to feed us today? Of course, there is also the unspoken, uh, you know, a large gorilla in the room there in England, which is is the class system. Because one of the other things that was driving me was I knew I had something to offer the world, um, but I knew in England, you know, uh, if you don't come from a certain place or a certain family, you know, life is going to be a lot harder. And and so I was kind of, uh, you know, I wasn't an outright Marxist, but I was kind of, you know, I was getting ready to to um, make my mark despite from despite what people might have thought of me in in England, you know. And I think that's what punk did. It put these people to the fore, you know, in a time when not much was happening, uh, but suddenly they were on. TV. Susie was on TV in London, you know. Yeah. But it was it was happening so quickly. We had different bands forming every week. Nobody had a clue what was going to happen, but everybody was wanting to, wanted to be in on it, whatever it might be. All right. I think that's kind of the, the that's the defining ethos of the of the era that we all knew something was happening. We weren't quite sure what, but we wanted to be. In on it. Go on, Lord. When was the t- when did when was the time when you you felt like you found your voice? You found this is me. This is the way I want to sound. This is the way I want to create. You know, people talk about the muse and as if it's an abstract concept, and in certain ways it is. But there's been certain points in my life where I absolutely knew that I was in line and doing the right thing, the thing that I was supposed to do. I mean, I think that's how I quantify you know having that creative artistic alignment it's when i know that i'm in the flow when i when i don't question what it is i'm doing and it just happens and that started with the cure probably about the time of 17 seconds i can remember thinking yeah that was the pivotal point where i knew that i was doing what I should be doing and 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 that I had a you know I had a part within it isn't it strange you were playing your style you were playing your drums the way you wanted to play them right and the big difference for me was I I that I could see that you didn't sound like anybody else and you were in a band that was your band All right and and I again was occupying somebody else's drum seat I'd set in on Palmolive's drum seat for the slits and adopted the rhythms and beats of Palmolive. Mm. And then I sat and learned Kenny's parts and his percussion overdubs with the Banshees. Right. I mean, I tried to fit in right. and, you know, and make a mark. In, but I was more, in, in, more concerned with getting this thing to, to work. My, my thinking came from a long line of that, really. From day one, it was, what's my role? Right. But you were the cure, right? You you were fully formed. Yeah, yeah. The first album that you did as you know fully fledged Banshee. That's still to me the most uh, unusual and 
genre pushing album that the Banshees did. Mm. Uh, it was never going to go in the directions it went after you joined. You know, the Kaleidoscope was for me that was uh, the first time I think where I found my own voice in a professional situation and a situation where I, I there was a good chance that other people would hear it. The first song, the first recording I did with the Banshees was uh, Happy House. And that went through many stages of different drum trials. I went from Keith Moon to Ginger Baker and back again, um, looking for the extraordinary and, and came up with something in be- that became more me. Uh, it certainly, it, it gave me a voice. Then really is 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 fame and fortune and recognition all that it's cracked up to be and i will go back to uh david bowie's quote about this matter he said fame the only reason fame is any good is for getting a better table at the restaurant and he's got a very po- good point i mean even though that's quite a sort of flippant answer but unfortunately i think it's a double-edged sword. The very thing that makes you obtain those vaulted heights, if you like, is the thing that also can destroy you. And I think that definitely happened for me. And it's like you got to a point where there's a something inside me that was looking for greater meaning, whereas everything that we were doing was actually sort of aimed towards meaning less all the time a lot of the way uh fame and fortune is is kind of put together is designed to keep you very uh packaged and very normal really and it it's that's not what i was ever interested in i was never interested in normal you know Uh, and perhaps Perhaps, you know, I'm not a psychologist, but perhaps a psychologist could tell you that that's because I was kind of scared of normal. Maybe that's it, you know, scared of normal. So when it, when it gets too normal, I get a bit worried. You know? I wonder how many psychologists it would take to, uh, uh, you know, to figure out the, uh, the conundrum of longevity versus uh, artistic integrity. Because... I think there's a certain amount of um, it's like the the booster rocket that fires you into orbit you know yeah. it's like it that that momentum keeps you going creatively regardless of how much people are trying to make you stay in place conform damn you you know <laughs> no let them do that flashing susie sign on top of the pops it'll be great for your career yeah. and, and you're going no, every creative bone in the body is going, no, we will not conform like everybody else. And eventually, maybe the, the kind of that thrust rocket just kind of you start to coast, the, the, the propellant's gone. And it's not that you've run out of creative juice. It's like it's you need to take a break or something. But if you take a break, it's a bit like the mission's over. Right, <laughs> stuck somewhere in dark space between the Earth and the Moon, you might eventually go around an orbit, but you might never get home again. That it, I, I could 
bring this one to, to the table, lol. You know, the, the Peter Pan syndrome. The boy who doesn't want to grow up, who wants to take everybody out to Never Never Land. And yet, at some point, we have that similar relationships with our front person, these, these intimate, private, and public bonds, if you like. But once it came undone, once that ceased to be, I think certainly I felt cut adrift, cast adrift. I just mentioned the, the, the rocket booster giving out, and it was just like float time. Um, collapse for me it was a total collapse um, it wasn't the booze or the you know few drugs or whatever it might it wasn't the, the, the rock and roll collapse it was the physical mental collapse of me as a person because Peter Pan didn't exist anymore I couldn't rely on the, the fairy tale it had gone so then what do we do I remember the decision. The decision was, I have to find out who I am. I need to do this for me, for nobody else. I'd never, ever put that question or that proposition to myself. And I didn't know how to do it. And I think maybe you understand what I'm talking about. I always think it was like, you know, at the beginning of sort of the creative journey we, was I was entwined so much with you know with the cure with the idea of Robert and me doing things and that supported my low moments and my high moments all the way along and then when that sort of evaporated I became completely adrift but also there was that you know you have to be you know destroyed in the fire of of life to come out anew interesting which is, which is basically you know quite a, a hindu philosophy right but it's like once you're tested in that then you have uh, a different viewpoint maybe for me you know there's two points one point where i got kind of my worst point and i left the cure or was asked to leave and then the real end of the cure came for me at the hall of fame that's that's the end of the cure for me that's my my point where i think okay there is no more cure for me after all this time i feel very grateful to have found somebody like budgie who has had a completely similar journey in life and we can reflect on that together and help each other bring bring out our creative paths again and that's 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 a wonderful thing that's also a gift i never expected to receive i never expected that to happen and that's what makes it so uh wonderful right we survived it and we made it and so we should celebrate it and i think that's really what we're doing now we're celebrating all the best things that we know from from our past and from our present and hopefully from our future and we're we're making something we're making more art we're making something more tangible out of that you know i i would say uh, if i may venture to say something <laughs> that, that <laughs> we kind of missed each other 
the first time round. Right. And I could think of many vague moments, you know. Mm. Of course, there, there are moments when we met and the moments when we probably spent time together. Yeah. But I remember when we met up again mm. and you said we should do something together. Right. And it just felt the right moment. And it felt the right moment to create a friendship. Right. To see if that if that is something that felt it felt good and we made if we've made it not mistakes or wrong turns. We've just followed where it's led. Yeah. And that's the thing. The other thing I think is very salient to it is back when we were in our early twenties, you know, we're we're going like a ricochet around the whole globe and that and you know, I don't know that we would have been able to be like this back then we would have we would have perhaps thought oh well yeah that's nice but and it would have gone like this and so i remember saying hey we should do something together let's do something and i hadn't had that idea until i started talking with you and i thought okay that's what we have to do so who are who are we now Lord? we're not peter pan who uh, are we mm. on this journey I, I, I keep thinking of we are the gilbert and george of punk <laughs> you, you know you know who we are we're the prodigal sons that's what we are we are hello everybody out there in curious question land we're going to dig into the uh, male sack it's a deep and itchy place down there, and we found one. I think we found one, Lowell. Oh, yeah. Um, so this one, I'm going to attempt to pronounce this name, but it's but it's uh, uh, Spanish, Spanish, and I'm es not sure. Es that... Espanol. Espanol, yeah. Hmm. Alejandro. 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 Uh, Geraldo Orozco. Orozco. Uh, Orozco. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think that's the last name. And it's directed to you, Saji. Para mío, para mío. Uh -huh. ah, hey, Budgie. I don't know if you personally can read this, but I really hope so. I have a question I don't know how appropriate it is for here. Is it true that the Boomerang master tapes are lost? <laughs> you have no idea how many people want to remaster for the album. Your drumming is fantastic, and I really hope that you still appreciate the album as much as your fans do. The music has even touched the hearts of very young people like me in places like South America. I really, really hope you read this and just wanted you to know, Alejandro. Are the tapes lost? You know, Sunday sent a, a shiver down the back <laughs> because, <laughs> because I've seen uh, the condition of some of those, uh, of tapes that are older than Boomerang. Uh, Boomerang was recorded, I think, around about 1989. Somewhere around that deck end of the decade, there. Um, as far as I know, they're not lost. Um, what I do know is that Boomerang is unavailable. It's uh, it was discontinued, um, uh, and therefore it's not of. I don't even know if it's available on to, to download at the moment to stream, or mm. if it's even up on Spotify. Um, and so I, I'm kind of. Wondering myself, because I do uh, have very fond memories of of the of of the recording, uh, which took us down to Southwest Spain, Jerez de la Frontera, mm -hmm. north of Cadiz, 
We met the Domecq family of the Sherry fame. We met Fermin Borghese. Borghese was a a bullfighter. And we recorded the album on in the bodega of, of his ranch. Wow. In the burning heat of the south southwest Spain there. Right. Absolutely. We took Mike Hedges again. Yes. We had a 16-track mobile from Abbey Road Studios, portable recording gear. Right. Um, which really didn't like the dry, sandy air of the bodega. Yeah. In, yeah. Right, sure. We loved the... Uh, the dry sherry uh, of the, uh, <laughs> yeah. of, of the region, which yeah. was made by the Domecq family. Uh, right. It was called Laina. <laughs> and we quaffed. Is that the sound you make after you've drunk half a bottle of it? That's the sound you make because it's very dry. <laughs> uh, yeah. You have to drink it ice cold. And they didn't Ooh. have a refrigerator. They had a refrigerated room. Okay. Wow. You walked when it was so hot. You walked into this refrigerated room and sat and sipped <laughs> a little while. Um, and that, and my memory again is that that's it. We we went in. We had we did a lot of rehearsing for the album. And we wrote a lot before we got there, which is very unusual. For, mm. for Creatures was always a spontaneous affair. It had been until that point, mm. but we had um, it, it came on a Banshee's hiatus after a very successful period uh, being peep show. But it, it was a, a strange time that we took, we had to take advantage of because I, I think we were still very much in the mood um, for creating something. Um, and there was, <laughs> I say, there was too much discussion going on in Banshee world mm. uh, and getting, which was, uh, wasn't very creative. Anyway, um, a lot of people have said that they liked that album. It's mm. like maybe even preferred it to some of the things. Mm. But I suppose it's where you come into Susan the Banshee's world or Susie's world or Susie and my world. But it was um, perhaps a little more uh, instant. And if you came in on Boomerang, it, there was a lot of variation in, in song. Mm. And it was very much, I suppose, an expose of our more blues roots in a way. And I don't know where those blues roots come from. Right. Yeah. You know, as far as I I know from talking to different people here in uh, California, the, the creatures are actually sort of more well-remembered here than, than the Banshees. So that blues bit is, is some of the connection as well because, you know, at the root of everything, when we started, for sure, you know, there, there's there's something that connects you back there to that. So, and you were probably a bigger proponent of it than anybody else because, you know, you have a, a deep musical history. So that would have come out, you know? Mm. So. Uh, yeah, very fond memories of, uh, again, another uh, album as Holiday. This is kind of what The Creatures was. It was a, a break, the only holiday we ever took was like the busman's holidays we say in, right, in England right. in Britain. Yes. A work, working holiday. Yeah. And that's the story, isn't it? And we and it was just always looking to be every tour that finished we was like what's it I wonder what it would be like to stay on here and um, how would it be to live here? Right. Right. Did you have those experiences when you were traveling? Finish the um, tour. Yeah, yeah, sometimes I would just stay. You know, everybody else mm -hmm. would go home. I remember like 
I forget exactly. I think it was Holland somewhere. You know, I decided, uh, you know, you catch the ferry home. I'm staying. And I stayed for about a week or so, maybe longer. And then, then I moseyed home, you know. Um, that's really how I ended up in California. I mean, I didn't come here on – I did come here on tour, but I, I decided at one point, you know, I'm just going to take a journey and see, you know, go to – become a stranger in a strange land again and uh, see where that takes me. And so far, so good. I do. I remember a Banshee's tour finishing on the West Coast, probably in in L.A. And right. um, me, Susie, Severin, and his partner then um, all stayed on as if as if we hadn't had enough of each other, you know, for like <laughs> several weeks <laughs> on the road. Yeah. Um, but uh-huh. we did. We we it was it was December, and of course the weather there was beautiful, and we thought. Are we going to go back to London and the cold and the yeah, wet and exactly. the rain and the, the the crowds down Oxford Street and nowhere's open and if it is you've got to have a booking and and no right. we just stayed, we stayed in LA and we had we walked up in the the hills and we had a great time um, yeah. we tried um, like fasting like juice fast for the first juice time. fasting so tell me how how early on was that in 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 the band's history was that. Early or or later that you did that, that was later. That would be okay. You know, it obviously wasn't the end of Peep Show because <laughs> <laughs> right. With the, with the, I don't think at the end of Peep Show there would be really not no desire to be spending right time extra time. <laughs> the the reason the reason I ask is because when you were talking, I remembered that um, our first tour in Australia, we ended up at the end of the tour in Perth in, in yeah. Western Australia, and. Um, Back then, you know, there wasn't you know quite the you know daily flights from Perth back to London. We had to wait for a week to get a flight back, and uh, we just stayed in a little uh, hotel by the 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 Indian Ocean for a week. And it was it's one of my most favourite memories of being in the band, you know, because we we'd done this tour where we'd played like twenty three places in Australia, which if you know about Australia is akin to playing like every big city and then some you know so we we had done australia in a big way and um but you know it was it was kind of at the beginning so we we played some real grassroots place like the bondi lifesaver and stuff you know and we got we got to perth and we played and we were you know it's like three or four weeks and we were pretty exhausted and then we had a week yeah. by the indian ocean just to have fun and just run up and down the bit you know the beach was like white sand like sugar you know you couldn't see anybody for miles in either direction it was just it was just wonderful you know and i i always think that if we had done more of that on with with uh, the cure you know perhaps uh we, we'd have understood each other more and perhaps you know things wouldn't push wouldn't have got to shove sometimes you know they're magic moments they yeah. really are they're not so easy to manufacture but when they happen and they yeah. go well yeah. Um, uh, Susie and I, as the creatures, were invited down to the 2000 Olympics in Sydney as a part of the opening ceremony there. Mm-hmm. But the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, mm-hmm. um, they, they offered to fly all, all our drums over and bits of equipment and bring us in a week before and kept us on a week after so we could do some shows, so our own gigs around there as well. So we actually got time to, you know, spend time and acclimatize. Otherwise, right. it's just such a long trip. 
but it was probably the first time we we'd had you know mm. to sit around yes um yes it's always fun but i remember every moment and that was that was the beauty of it yes and that is the beauty of of what what we do now yeah curious creatures is created and presented by Vol Tolhurst and budgie producer joe wong producer and audio designer dan didier Executive producer, Mark Cates. Associate producer, Sophie Spare. Social media, Margie Taylor. Art and logo design, Justin Thomas K. Music production, Jack Knife Lee. Curious Creatures is on the web, and you can access us at www.curiouscreaturespodcast.com. I love saying www.curiouscreaturespodcast.com. <laughs> And you can reach us on Instagram, Facebook, <laughs> at Curious Creatures Official, Twitter, at Cure Creatures. To find more of the best music podcasts, visit doubleelvis.com or follow at doubleelvis on Instagram and at doubleelvisfm on Twitter. Curious Creatures is a production of LXB LLC 2021.